So what's been happening, Mike? Mate, very busy week as ever. Lots of things to do. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, trying to find guests for the show, which is always hard. I mean, this Well, guy, it's actually not hard. They kind of come from me. They do. They do. Almost anybody can get an interview on this podcast. Almost. 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 How's the uh, nighttime economy stuff going? Pretty good. Pretty yeah. good. It's uh, the inquiries still... Uh, Cranking along. Yep. That'll end at the end of August um, with uh, Keep Sydney Open coming on. The Independent Bars will be on that. Um, yep. So hopefully we get some good recommendations coming out of that for Sydney's night time. But mm-hmm. yeah. Anything our listeners can do to help mobilise the cause, or are we still uh, in the early stages? Well, not at this stage, I reckon. Like, uh, I mean, one thing I'm working on is trying to get a Nighttime Industries Association together for the city, which is, uh, I think, what's needed. We need people from different sectors to come together and express one view to government, so yep. we'll uh, see how that's how that comes together in the next couple of weeks. But the ambition would be to get that live by the end of September, so once I know, I'll yeah right <laughs> and you organized today's guest yeah paddy uh who is i think one of the guy that guys that's just done amazing things in sydney uh i first met paddy when he i think it was uh when he was owning and running lo-fi uh which was right. quite a venue back in in sydney well, it has been over time i guess uh, old middle bar space so yeah i remember that yeah i remember opening yeah. yeah so uh and at that time he'd um Lo-fi was being used for all manner of events, and I mean, like everybody else, wanted to do something exciting there. So, yeah, I think we our first thing was uh, that we did with him was a, a cocktail competition called the Timeout Shakedown. Uh, yeah, right. Which, I remember that. Yeah, yeah which uh, was in fact uh, done in a prohibition style, and in fact the police did turn up and try and shut the event down, which made for quite an interesting evening. But Paddy's been, I think, a, a, a real mover and shaker, an innovator in the space for a long time. So yeah. keen to get him in and ask him a few questions about how he goes about spotting trends and yeah, and, and, and getting it right. I guess more than he gets wrong. Yeah, right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I um, I've watched him from afar just through being competitive, really, when Riverdale was growing at a pretty similar time to the, the, when Keystone was growing. So that opened a venue, we'd opened a venue, so there was always uh, you know a watchful eye over what they were doing. So yeah, I'm looking forward to the chat. Great. Let's get into it. We're here with our next guest on the Back of House podcast, Paddy Coglin. Welcome to the show. Hi. <laughs> Long Thanks time. for having me. <laughs> Eating sweets, we just introduced mm. you. Yeah. Like, yeah. Where did the name um, Back of House come from? It's like like all things, Patty, and we'll talk about this later in the podcast. Oh, but fuck, it, was a, it was a collaboration. A collaboration. Of oh, really? A collab? Lots. Yeah, just say so. <laughs> One of the most overused words in yeah, totally. Sydney right now. I think I had an idea and Luke's was better, so we went with Luke's. I think that's how it worked. Yeah. <laughs> That's a collab. <laughs> that used to be called My Ideas Better Than Yours. Now it's a collab. Yeah, but the thing mm. is, when you're a publisher, you just say, I said that and publish it, and then people believe. Mm. So it's 2010. Mm. You're sitting around a boardroom table with Mark Carnegie, John Singleton, Jeff Dixon, three of the biggest names in Australian corporate culture. And did you think when you opened your first pub 15 years before in Paddington that you'd end up there? No, man, obviously not. Of course not. I'd like to say yes, but that would be a lie. Um, no, of course not. But, you know, you never know what's going to happen in the future, mate. That's the, you, know, you don't know what's going to happen. So I kind of, um, you know, that whole thing was a, 
um, was a you know it was a byproduct of what was happening you know economically in the world, let alone Australia. So it was a that whole idea that led me to that boardroom table was a direct consequence of the GFC. Yeah, like so. Tell us more about so that. So who knew the GFC was coming? You know, so so you could so the so the, the you know so the same. You know, you could equally, you could, you know, in the same um, the the same um, concept is you could ask me, did you ever think the GFC was going to happen? Well, no, of course not. You know, so, yeah. Um, um, so, yeah, interesting time though. But like, so, you know, you opened your first pub in Paddington in the mid nineties. A um, mm. couple more after that, but the the bit um, and quite young at the time, I think it's fair to say. So 23, 24, 25, mm. that kind of age. And, and you progress from there, and then suddenly you what? You're out in a pub crawl with Singo. No, no, no. Showing the sights. No. Like, Mate, here's an idea. Here's no, an idea. No. How, how no. did it go down? Tell us. Tell us the story. Of That's it. the romantic version. Um, no, mate. No, the the the, rea- the real the reality is it was a lot. You know, there's a lot of hard work in between all that. Um, so I had had my first pub. Second pub was an absolute disaster. I lost a lot of money. Third pub ended up in um, in a really just rundown, rough pub in Redfern, the Glengarry Castle, which is still there. And we had that pub. So we these were leaseholds, so we didn't own the property. So we had that pub, and we had another pub up in Scone, which is like in the Upper Hunter Valley, pretty randomly. And we sold both of those. We did well. We worked hard, did well. Sold both of those pubs. Had enough money to buy our first freehold pub, which we bought at Waterloo, the Grosvenor Hotel at Waterloo, two point seven seven million dollars. Um, and it was everything we had, you know. And we lived upstairs, and so we worked that for about four years. Like, and that's you and Ned, right, at this stage? Sorry, myself and Ned. Yeah, yeah, myself and Ned, and um, Rod Kelly is Ned. My, old, you know, we went to school together, grew up together. Um, so. After four years of that, you know, we it's you know we'd broken the back of it, you know, like it was we you know if you th- if you think of it this way, year one of that pub, our first freehold, invested every penny we had into it, lived upstairs, all the rest of it, right? Year one we worked seven days a week. Year two we worked six days a week. Year three we got back to five. By year four, man, I was I was working. I'd moved to Barrel, back to Barrel, and man, I was working. I'd only come to Sydney like two or three days a week. Ned lived in Sydney, so he ran the pub. I did sort of all the admin stuff, which I could do from every, from anywhere. You know, man, I suddenly found myself living in Barrow going, Jesus, well, you know, this is all pretty easy. I'm too young to... I should be working harder than this. Mm. The, pub's, the pub doesn't need me, you know. Um, it was providing a really good income for us both. Ned was happy to do all the kind of day-to-day work there because he was living in Sydney. And then we came up with an idea to start... So it was it, that. So that was the beginning of... Um, the early stages of, of the, um, I guess, the most recent kind of um, downturn in the pub industry. That was the start of that. And that's sort of two, 2000. And so that must have been 2008, you know, around about that. And we could see, so we essentially predicted that the pub sector was going to go, about to go through a really hard time. So we predicted that and we were spot on the money, right? We didn't know it at the time. We just took a took a punt, educated, educated guess. guess yeah. right? So in reaction to that, 
I said to Ned, listen, I've got some time on my hands, right? I'll go off and do it. We'll do it together, but I'll go off and do this. Um, and we'll start a consultancy business and go and pitch to um, banks and receiver, receivership companies, insolvency people, um, to manage pubs as they start. Because it, it, like, it had already started. There was one or two pubs that had gone into receivership, which there hadn't been any pub receiverships for a long time. Mm-hmm. One or two had, had just happened, you know. And all these receivers need, you know, they need management for when these things happen. You know, um, insolvency companies need management because their only other option is to, they can't, they can't leave the existing management in there because they're the ones who have let this happen. So they need to get rid of those people. Their only, their junior staff at a Deloitte's or at a, you know, at a Grant Thornton or whatever. Yeah. Their junior staff are young accountants. They don't know how to run pubs. So they've got to find um, pub management. So we went and pitched, you know, mate, we literally got a list from somewhere of um, every insolvency practitioner in New South Wales. I I can't remember where we got that list, but we got that list. We printed up some brochures, set up an email account, set up a website and just sent them all a pack, like sent them all like a, you know, in like snail mail, you know, glossy brochure, Mm. You know, come up with a name, Riversdale Group Consulting. You know, it was all like, we didn't know what we were doing, mate. But but we knew how to run pubs, right? So, but the rest of it, how the you know how the insolvency world worked and how the corporate world worked, really, mate. We we're just learning as we went, you know. But we knew how to run pubs. So we send all these things out. We do the pitch, and we start getting callbacks. Hey, so and so from you know. Um, whatever insolvency company, you know, we've got a couple of matters that might turn into receiverships. Can you come and um, talk to us about mm. if these things drop, would you be able to go and run these pubs, you know? I mean, so we maybe went and bought a couple of suits, you know, and, we, you know, neither <laughs> of us, like, I mean, we probably owned a suit, you know what I mean? But, uh, you know, we, certainly, we weren't certainly, we certainly weren't dressing in suits well, going... Two, two for the price of one of those, was it? Probably, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't think the quality was there. But uh, we, and then we started going to meetings and we literally went to meetings with our brochures and with our, you know, just some, you know, real basic kind of examples of, I guess what we what we used as our point of difference was that we had done turnarounds with our own money in pubs that we owned. So our, our thing, because we had no capital, we were always looking, previous to the, you know, previous to that, we were always looking for pubs that were run down that we could get for cheap. And we would go in and turn them around and sell them because we were always we were always trying to build our capital bank, you know, because we had no capital, we had no access to capital. We weren't from rich families; banks wouldn't lend us money. So, so whilst we didn't have much corporate acumen, we had a track record of doing the same thing that they wanted us to do with our own money, you know, and that was powerful to them, you know. So, um, so I guess that's how we got our foot in the door with with a lot of these um, insolvency companies. Um, and then the jobs started coming, mate. Like, it was literally... Like, we predicted this thing so well. Like, it was a fluke, right? I mean, you know, I'm not sitting here trying to say that we were... That we were, um, you know... I mean, look, we were smart enough to know it was coming, but just the timing was timing, a fluke. Timing. The timing was a fluke, right? Yeah. So, so, mate, within three months, we had we were running six pubs that were in insolvency, you know? Um, generating a lot of fees for us, you know, and, and so it was really, it was great, it was a lucrative business for us, you know. But, you know, bigger than that, like, you know, I saw, we both saw a, uh, you know, I, I thought this is really good, but there's a bigger, there's a bigger play here. Like there's, you know, um, we can just sit here and, and just cop all these, you know, exorbitant fees we were charging um, and ride that until 
until the GFC corrects itself, or we can go and raise capital and buy some of these pubs that we're running, you know? Um, that's where the idea came from. That idea, you know, morphed into a distressed... Um, we decided to start a distressed pub fund. So a fund, you know, meaning we had to go and raise capital. So um, so then we set about going to raise capital, which I had no idea about how to do, you know. And I rang up a mate of mine who worked in banking and I said, mate, how do you raise money? <laughs> and he said, oh, you've got to go and, like, find private equity guys, you know. I'm like, what's, what's private equity? I don't know what that is. <laughs> you know, it's just funny now, you know. And, uh, and my, like, I'm, I'm not even, like, I'm not even trying to be, you know, like that's exactly how it happened, mate. Like I'm not trying to be cute or, or funny or whatever. That's actually how it happened. Like we, I, I, I'd never had any exposure to corporate world. I'd never had any exposure to private equity. I was just a, you know, mate, I was a kid who worked in pubs who somehow battled my way into being able to own a pub with no capital behind so me. So then you type into Google... Private Equity Sydney and Mark Honey. No, no, man. There's a better story. Than that. There's a better story. So, um, so I, um, so I'm asking around. I had some mates who worked in banking who understood that world, and they gave me some pointers, you know, but nothing, no introductions or anything. Just, you know, these these are the type of people you need to go and see. So I'm having a beer with a mate of mine, um, um, and I won't say his name, but uh, who who owned a pub at the time who was equally as non-corporate as I was, and I mentioned this idea to him. And he said, and about a week later, he calls me up and he goes, mate, you know that idea you've had about doing a distressed pub fund? I said, yep, yeah, where are you at with that? I go, well, man, I'm, tr- I'm trying to figure out where the fuck I can raise this money. And he said, we just came out of the most bizarrest meeting I've ever had, and I think you should go and see this bloke. And so... So... <laughs> um, there was a guy that there was a guy who was a personal trainer, right? It's even more obscure than this, right? So, so Mark Carnegie, who's the guy we ended up doing the deal with, who's like, you know, the smartest guy I've ever met in my life, and a private equity guru in Australia and uh, and in the world, and you know, all the rest. Of it, I'm sure you know he, people would know who he, know of him or whatever. Um, he had a personal trainer. The personal trainer was on holidays. His replacement was a guy that we knew, right? <laughs> so, so while they were training, right? And this, this is all, this is gospel, mate. This is not made up. It sounds made up because you can't even believe that this is how it all happened, right? But during their training sessions, this mate of mine who, who was only a stand-in personal trainer, was a very inquisitive guy, loved to chat, you know, just real knockabout guy. He would talk to Carnegie about, um, oh, what's going on in business, you know, and Mark would say, oh, I'm looking at this sector and I'm looking at this sector. Mark was and is always famous for, you know, being a, um, a counter-cyclical type of an investor, right? If everyone else didn't like that sector or if that sector was, was at the wrong end of the cycle, that's when he would pounce. He was re- he's renowned for it, right? So Carnegie says to my mate, he says, um, I think pubs are a bit of a go, you know? The, the, the pub market seems to be tanking. Um, I think there might be an opportunity there. My mate says, I know two blokes who own, who own a pub. You should talk to them. So these were the other two guys. Mate, they turned up to the meeting with Carnegie at his office in the city in fucking ripped jeans, a T-shirt. <laughs> like they, 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 I mean, they just – it wasn't their bag at all, right? Yeah. They went in the meeting. They came out of the meeting and rang me from outside his office 
and said, mate, are you still doing the whole thing? I said, I'm still trying to figure out how to raise the funds. He said, mate, we just had the most bizarre meeting. We were so embarrassed being in there because we just didn't even know what we were walking into. Mm. It was way above our head, but God, you should meet this bloke. So they gave me his number. I ring his office. And of course, you know, you can't just ring up Mark Koenig and have it, you know, you don't just ring him up and he answers the phone. You've got to get through <laughs> 10 layers of, you know, personal secretaries or whatever. So I just said to the lady, I said, look, um, look, if you just give me his email address, I'll, I'll just send him an email. I sent him an email, just really like just a, uh, just a, you know, a few lines, just saying, hey, Mark, um, I'm, I'm a mate of so-and-so's. Um, they tell me you're interested in... Um, they tell me you think pubs could be an interesting sector to invest in. So do I. I'm trying to figure out how to raise money. Sent him an email. It was a Friday afternoon. He called me within five minutes. Mm. And, I, and that, since getting to know the guy, that just never happens, right? So, so I, I literally hit send on the email. I'm in my little office down in Barrel. Just send an email thinking, oh, yeah, whatever. Probably nothing will come of that. You know, where am I going to go for a beer? It's like four o'clock. Five <laughs> minutes later, my phone rings, right? Uh, good day, Paddy. It's Mark Carnegie here. Oh, good day, Mark. Thanks for calling me back. Yeah. Um, so, what do you reckon about this pub industry? I, said, you know, gave him the whole thing that I that I thought. He says, "Yeah, I think you're right. You're onto something. Let's meet up." So, I organised a meeting for him next the, the following week. Um, went and had that was the first meeting that I had, and the first meeting that I had with him, we, we had a couple of meetings, and he said, "Yep, you're on the right track, but you're a little bit ahead of time." I said, "What do you mean?" He said. He said, the, he said, you want to do it as close to the bottom as you can. This is what, this is, he's, you know, he's a counter-cyclical investor. He said, it's not the bottom yet. He said, I reckon you've got about 12 months before it hits the bottom. I said, well, fuck, mate, I'm ready to go now. Like, what, what, what do you want me to do? He goes, well, what I'm going to do is we've got a big fund, but I've got another little fund over here. Um, I'll get them to invest some money with you and you can buy one pub. And it's basically just... You know, monopoly board. Just kill time until it, uh, you know, like maybe do one or two pubs and that'll take up a year and then it'll be ready to go big on this idea. I'm guessing that was maybe the Bellevue then. No, no, no. And uh, Bellevue came later. And so I said, okay, great. All the while we, you know, we had the, the Grosvenor Hotel at Waterloo. So, you know, we were, we were sort of just, you know, we were fine financially. I didn't need to do anything right then, you know. And if this guy who I, you know, obviously was very smart, thought it was a bit early, I thought, man, right. And we just, so we were, so we were just doing our management um, work and and earning fees, etc. So he puts me onto one of his smaller funds, and I have to go and do a meeting to them and pitch to them. And then I realised how long all this stuff takes, right? Mm. So this took about. We had about six months of meeting with these guys from the small fund and identifying, you know, prospective opportunities and how much are they going to cost. And, you know, by about nine months, there's documents ready for us to sign to uh, to take on our first, and I think they were going to invest maybe $3 million, right? This is nine months later. And literally, mate, the amount of meetings I've had to have with them and, you know, and just the, you know... Um, just the the amount of work and time and effort that it all took, you know. Um, but it was something I wanted to do. And we finally get to document stage, and it's nine months down the track. I mean, like, I'm meant to sign the documents that week, right? Carnegie calls me. I haven't spoken to him in about nine months. Calls me, he goes, it's time. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? He said, that's no, time. He said, remember that thing we talked about nine months? He goes, it's fucking time. This is it, mate. This is Armageddon. This is it. This is the bottom. Come and see me. 
So I go in and see. He goes, right, how much money do you want? Like, literally, he says, how much money? No, well, we're not. How much money do you want? Sorry, that's flippant. He said, how much money do you think that you can invest in distressed pubs? Pubs that we can buy at a discount. And I said, hang on, mate, we're about to sign this paperwork over here to get three million bucks of investment from your other fund. He goes, no, fuck that. Forget about that. Forget about that. So that like, to me, like in my small-minded, you know, I was so inexperienced, mate. So to me, all I could think about was all the nine months of work that we'd wasted. But to him, he, you know, like obviously a lot more worldly in, in investment terms, he went, that's He's like, this it. The big chance is now. You straight know? to Mains. This is it. Right. The big yeah. chance is now. And I said, look, if we buy... I said, mate, I don't know. Look, I think the sweet spot's going to be $10 million per pub. I reckon we could buy somewhere between 8 and 10 of them, 80 to, 80 to 90 million. We can borrow half. He goes, right, 40 million. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> he said, I'll invest 40 million in a fund that we're going to start up. You and Ned are going to be partners in it. You've got to put in money or you can put in your pub that you've got as, equ- as our equity, you know, and we'll put in the rest. I said, oh, beautiful, yep. He goes, now, have you ever heard of John Singleton? <laughs> I said, what you? And, of course, uh, you know, I'd done my research on Mark. Mark was one of, one of many things he was well known for was co-investing with CO in lots of investments, right? So I knew that. And he says, he says have you ever heard of John Singleton? I go, mate, I'm not an idiot. I, you know, I know you co-invest with him a lot. Of course I've heard, from, heard of him. I said, mate, to be honest, mate, the guy is like a bit of a hero to us, you know. Like, we're pub guys. He's a, you know, singer, mate. He's a, you know, he's a, he's a champion of the working man, you know. We're, and he's got more money than God and he's smart, you know. And, but he has that common touch, which we love. You know. He says, right, come here tomorrow at this time and I'll make sure he's here. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm going to meet singer. You know? <laughs> and then in 30 seconds time, she said... I wanna live like common people I wanna do whatever common people do Wanna sleep with common people So then I went back the next day, you know, in, in, a, in the corporate office, you know, I had a suit on and Singo walks in the first time I meet him and, you know, he starts asking me about myself and, you know, he says, and he, you know, just real, as you'd expect with him, mate, it's very, um, he has that ability of just asking you questions from left field that just disarm you straight away. You, know, you almost get disorientated, mate, because, you know, he never asks you what you think he's going to ask you, right? So, um, so I had one of those meetings with him. And it was, you know, highly entertaining and just, you know, unbelievable that I was meeting him and, you know, and he said, now tell me the idea. And, you know, I started going on about numbers and stuff to him and he said, don't tell me fucking numbers, just tell me the idea. He said, I'm not interested in numbers. You know, those blokes will do all the numbers. You just tell me the idea. And I said, well, mate, the idea is, mate, pubs are fucked. <laughs> Everyone's selling pubs fucking cheap. The underlying value's there. We can buy them and we can turn them around. That's it. That's the fucking idea. You know? He goes, yeah, yeah, I like it. Let's go and have a look at some pubs, you know? So, and we went. But then, I, I'll never forget, he asked me like, a little bit about myself, about my own, like, um, you know, he said, uh, asked me about like, how much money I had and, you know, what I was worth and all this. And, you know, like, and we thought we were going pretty good. But obviously, you know, we were fucking small fry compared to him, you know, but. So I'm telling him, oh, I've got a, you know, um, we own a pub, like, you know, we own a, a pub, our first freehold pub that we bought a couple of years ago and, or four years ago or whatever and, um, you know, we, we have an investment property here or whatever, you know, like real small type stuff and, and he said, what do you want to do? And we'd just been looking, I remember, I remember Ned and I had just been looking at a commercial shopping glebe that we wanted to buy as an investment and so I just, because ha- I literally looked at it that week, so it was like 
in my mind, you know, and I just said it. I said, oh, you know, he said, what do you want to, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I might just want to buy some more investments. Oh, as a matter of fact, we just looked at this um, shop in Glebe that we're thinking about buying, you know, and whatever, you know, time the price. He goes, oh, what do you want to have a fucking Jewish shop portfolio, do you? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know what that meant. And I said, I said, I don't know. I said, mate, I just want to be rich. That's all. You know, I don't give a fuck how I do it. You know, I said, uh, so that was just the funnier side. Anyway, so, um, so we went the next day and went and had a look at pubs. Like he, he, he organised, him and his driver came and turned up at the pub we owned at Waterloo and picked us up and we spent a whole day together looking at pubs and taking him to pubs that were um, the type of pubs that we'd be able to buy, not ones that were actually for sale that day, but mm. the, the style of pubs that we thought, you know, we, and mate, we literally spent the day. So we'd say to the driver, right, go to this pub, and we'd say, we'd walk in there and have a beer, I'd say, mate, right, this is what they're doing wrong, this is what I reckon we could buy it for at the moment, this is what I reckon it'll be worth in a few years, you know, if we execute our turnaround strategy, you know, this is what it would cost, like, they were all really, like, you know, the beauty of the whole idea was it was, they weren't, we weren't buying pubs that you needed to spend millions of dollars on. They're, they're like a few hundred grand, just repositioning and re, it wasn't, they weren't huge, um, um, they weren't, it, it wasn't huge work needed, you know? So we explained all that to him and we end up at, um, mate, we end up at, every pub we went into we had a beer at too, by the way. <laughs> and it was like, and we started at about 10 o'clock. We ended up up the central coast, so he lives at, Gosford area, Central Coast area. So we're always heading up that way because he obviously wanted to eventually get home. And um, it was unbelievable. It was like, I mean, it was like a circus. Like everywhere we went, people knew him and gravitated towards him. We had beer in every pub. When it was time to leave every pub, we'd have to go find him and he'd, you'd find him in the fucking corner of the smoking area having a – or not, well, he doesn't smoke, but, you know, just chatting with the real, you know, just everyday pub punters, you know, and that's his – you know, I mean, he's got a he's, he's he's got a gift for that. You know, people people just love him. You know, and um, and we end up and all the way on the like during the day. Every time we get back in the car, he would call someone, some mate of his, and some mate of his would appear at the next pub. You know, like that happened like all day. And then we he said um, he said, well, "What are you blacks doing tonight?" And we said, "Oh, nothing, well, mate. We just, you know, we, we didn't really know how this day was going to pan out." So he goes, "Right, well, we'll go up to the farm, and you guys can come up there with me, and we'll have we'll have dinner up there, you know. And then I'll get the driver to drive you back to Sydney, you know." And so, um, and so we end up at his farm, and he rang ahead and asked his caretaker to cook a barbie for us, and you know, we get to his farm, we have, you know, we end up getting fucking blind at his <laughs> at his farm, and you know, just drinking games and you know just you know yeah it's really good drinking again and thinking of when when you loved me I'm having a I mean some of these names are stuff of folklore I think mm. uh, and and I'm wondering how much you picked up from them but also maybe how much they may have picked up from you like I think that I've known you for a good eight years or so and um, I think that rightly or wrongly you've you're sort of flown under the radar in some ways like I've, I've always respected your ability to your business acumen um, thanks mate yeah <laughs> um, you 
you, you, your way to think about things that uh, is different to the way I look at things. Like, mm. but was obviously you had a personal connection with Singo by the sounds of things, but mm. was there a fair exchange of, of skills and abilities? Yeah. I think, um, I mean, one of the things I learned about all those guys, you know, from working close quarters with them, is they're they're often just surrounded by yes men. You know, that's mm. it's not like, not because they want to be. It's just the nature of their industries and their the nature of their profile and the nature of their mm. you know corporate world in general has a bit of that. And you know, they just so you know they just constantly bombarded. Well, they're constantly bombarded with yes men, and they're bombarded with people with shit ideas. You know, shit ideas coming to them asking them for money. You know. And, and as much as they try and filter those people, there'll always be someone that knows someone who's friends with them and they have to give them the time and, you know. Like the amount of times I used to hear either of Carnegie or Singer would say, oh, come and sit on this meeting with me. I said, why? Because you know, it's a favour for a friend and I just know it's going to be a fucking shit idea. So, you know, so, you know, I mean, obviously they get a lot of good ideas as well, mm. right, because they invest in a lot of businesses, but yeah. they just have to sit through a lot of shit ideas you know and our idea was a, just a good idea and we'd done it ourselves with our own money again like that whole thing when we we're pitching receivers one of the things that was impressive to these guys was the fact we'd done it on such a small a real tiny scale but we'd done it you know where'd you get the money to buy that well mate we worked you know we worked hard and we bought and sold businesses and we built enough capital to buy our first freehold and that freehold that we bought for 2.7 is now worth five and all that sort of, you know, we, we were battlers, mate. We were, mm. we were hustlers, you know. So um, they respected that, I, I think they... Because I think I think it was uncommon that, you know, hustlers don't get to those guys, you know, but we somehow got to them, you know. So that's, that's kind of uh, like what I've been sitting here wondering, how, like what your mental state was like going from owning your own pub to go into these environments where you're talking to private equity, you're trying to figure out how to negotiate with them, how to raise money. Like that's that's outside of your comfort zone stuff. Yeah. Did you go through a period when you were where you were uh, daunted, anxious, scared, um, nervous no, about no, the no, outcome? Really, no, no. I mean, because no. no. a lot of people would really be quite no, no. challenged by that yeah. proposition. But yeah, no, I just used to, I, mate. I just used to think. I always think, don't be afraid to say what you don't know. Mm. Right? So if you're in a meeting and you don't know something, just say you don't know. It, you know? Yep. And and there was a lot of that in those in those early days, you know. But at the core of the the core of the idea, no one knows that better than me, you know. And the core I'm- of the idea, buying a pub, buying a pub for you know, I mean, look, you know, there's a few different things that we were doing, but you know, on a on a on a general you know helicopter view, we we're buying pubs that were undervalued that yep. we thought that we could add value to. That's it, right? So, you know, so if ever I was unsure about something or I got asked a question about something, I go, mate, I don't fucking know. But I know that we're going to buy this pub for X and we're going to sell it for X. So you tell me what the, whatever fucking stupid question you just asked me, <laughs> fucking tell me the fucking answer. Instead of trying to make me look like a fuckwit for your own fucking gain in front of your bosses, tell me the fucking answer. All right? I'm not sitting here trying to be a fucking accountant. Yep. I'm sitting here telling you I have a good idea that revolves around the pub industry, which I know better than you. All right? I'm not sitting here being, you know, I'm not a numbers guy. I'm not a, but here's, I know this better than anyone. Mm. Right? I've done it with my own money. The market conditions have ne- are fucking perfect for this idea right now. There's going to be a window where we can do it. Your boss has already fucking picked the window because I wanted to do this a year ago and he told me to wait a year. Right? So I can't tell you how many meetings I had like that, mate, with juniors, junior accountants mm. in it, you know, from 
you know, in our first deal we did was with um, Lazard, um, Lazard Carnegie Wiley, which was like a joint venture between Lazard, big American firm and Mark's thing. And then, you know, the second kind of piece of Riversdale was when Mark went out on his own, you know. So all the while, mate, you, you know, you talk to those guys on a, on a you know, on a, you know, high level basis and you, about the idea and about the, mm. you know, they agree with the idea. Here's how much money we're going to invest. Now go and work out the fucking details with our with our staff. You know, so the amount of fucking meetings I used to have have to have like that with, you know, and I never had any fucking respect for them, and they never respected me either. They just thought I was some fucking idiot, and I just thought they were just fucking jumped up, fucking junior accountants trying to make a name for themselves. You know? <laughs> it's good you had a little equal. Yeah. Oh mate, we all fucking hated each other, but yeah, you know, like a couple of them I ended up with a mutual respect for. But most of them, I just thought, you're a fuckwit. I thought, you are a fuckwit. That probably it makes it easier. Mm. Yeah. And, but the thing that underscores for me a little bit is that, and it's one thing that took me a while to learn, um, is that the, the idea is the idea and the skill to execute it. They're the unique bits. The money actually, while at the time you think it's everything, is the, actually the interchangeable bit. Right? Mate, there is so yeah. much. I tell you, I learned a lesson really early on. Before all this, I just learned a lesson that, there is so much money floating around mm. in, in every country, but let's just talk about Australia. And a lot of it's driven by superannuation, right? So you think about this, right? So, and I'm just, you know, I'm not a, you know, I'm no mathematical genius, I'm a pretty normal guy. Every week, every worker in Australia, 9% of their pay has to go somewhere. Yeah. So where the fuck does that all, all that money go? That money's got to find a home. So there is so much. So when people say to me they can't raise money, I always say, "Well, that's because your idea is shit." Because there is so much fucking money in this com- in this country looking for a home, mm. so much capital. So I just don't believe that people. If you can't raise money, it's because your idea is shit. So I, I always had that belief. So and to your point, Mike, when it comes a guy, there's a guy that I knew. It was like a friend of a friend who'd done a private equity deal in the like maybe hospital space or something, you know, nothing that I knew about, but I just knew he'd done a private equity deal. And my, my mate introduced me to him one time. We were having beers somewhere. And I told him it was early days of meeting Mark and he said to me, um, he said, mate, I'm going to give you one piece of advice. They need you as much as you need them. So that means that they've got money, they're in control of... So, that, so the bulk of our investment in Riversdale came from superannuation money, right? So the biggest investor in Riversdale was Sun Super, Queensland's biggest super fund. Mark Carnegie is in charge of $300 million of their funds under management. So he decides where that $300 million goes. So the guy that I met, a, a friend of a friend, just said that to me. It was just the most simplest thing I'd ever heard in my life. I just went, he goes, mate, don't be intimidated by them. They need you as much as you need them. He said, mate, he's getting paid fees to manage that money he needs to put it somewhere you need money but you've got the idea he doesn't have the ideas there's money fucking everywhere but you gotta have the idea so the idea and that's something i think i think that's what you're trying to say a lot of people get they don't understand the value of their idea the second bit to that which you just said is the ability to execute very important you know that's something we had you know so when i was saying before about how Mark and Singer and all those guys constantly have to sit in pictures, you know. I used to sit in some of them with them. Some of the, you know, you know, um, a, a, you know, a, a 
reasonable amount of the time, uh, someone would come and pitch an idea, and the idea was good, but we'd all sit there and go, well, who's going to do it? Mm. And the bloke wouldn't know, you know? He just had the idea. Mm. So that's another really important piece to it, you know? So everyone, mate, you know, like, everyone can have an idea. It's how do you execute it, you know? So we had the idea and the ability to execute, you know? And we had track record with our own money. That was the thing. So, so one of the... One of the things that, you know, the, the junior accountants would always ask is, oh, well, you, hang on, you blokes have only ever run one pub at a time. How are you going to run ten? And they go, well, mate, we'll figure it out. But I, and I remember like looking, I remember sitting at one of these meetings and the guy asked me, and I go, well, mate, your only option, mate, is to go and find someone who's run ten pubs. So where are you going to find that guy? Oh, well, I'm sure there's managers who have worked for a company. I go, so you're going to go and hire a manager who might have run ten pubs. So I'm sitting here, I've, I can show you where I've done it with my own money. It's my idea. I've raised the funds and I've run one pub successfully. So the only bet here is that I can, you know, that I can build a head office and run 10. Or you go and get some guy on fucking 80 grand a year who's run 10 pubs for someone else. Who do you reckon is going to do a better job? You know, and that's, and that's kind of, there was a lot of times like that where you had to, you know, explain, you know, convince, mm. you know, Convince someone who had no stake in any of this that you know we could do it, but that was just part of that's just part of the part of the game, I guess. So we talking a little bit about uh, your skill set, I guess, in that team about having the idea, being able to execute it, and then groups growing acquired properties I know a lot of them we've had a beer in together mm. we've had Toxteth uh, Vic on the Park yeah. uh, Marlborough uh, Bristol Arms but, but great pubs every one of them yeah yeah <laughs> Snitzels all, all around <laughs> but the there's a point at which the business is headed towards a listing or there's like a new corporate reincarnation and mm. and, and then you as CEO sort of had to make a decision do you want to tell us about that 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 part of the story? And yeah, I mean, I was like, you know, as I said before, I, you know, pre all this, we had no exposure to um, corporate world, you know, and all of a sudden I'm CEO of a, you know, private equity backed fund, you know, 40 million bucks of, you know, superannuation money along with 40 or 50 million of debt. You know? <laughs> like, it was pretty, it was pretty, um, it was an interesting time. They're, ju- they're just zeros, mate. <laughs> I know, yeah, I know. <laughs> Um, it was great fun. So, um, so in gro- so we're in growth mode, you know, acquiring, acquiring, turning around, executing for you know a good sort of three and a half, four years, and then you know, then it kind of um, it was almost like all the investors were happy to leave me alone until we got to a certain size, mm-hmm. and then it was like right. And I remember having these meetings. You know, I remember like you know. Jeff Dixon came and saw me, you know, or I had, you know, whatever, he organised to have a coffee with me and I have a coffee. He goes, mate, we're starting to get to a decent size now. You know, we're going to have to change the way we do things here. We're going to have to start acting like we're a public company to prepare to take the company public, you know. I went, okay, you know, like everything, mate, I hadn't done any, you know, like it was all new to me. So, yeah, just tell me what I'm meant to do, you know. (laughs) And, um, and, but that's kind of when it all changed. Yeah, it was like, you know, suddenly there was, a whole no, a whole new layer of reporting, a whole new layer of justifying every dollar spent. You know, um, we moved offices. You know, we, that, you know, 
I, that was a big thing for me. I don't think anyone else, certainly none of those guys like Jeff or or Sigma, no, they didn't they didn't think anything of it. But it was a big thing to me. You know, it was the culture of the company. We we come we were the underdogs. You know, so we had this office at Waterloo. You know, I love Redfern Waterloo. I've always lived around there since I've been in Sydney. You know, and I like the. I don't know. I just like the vibe, the ethos of those of that area, right? So, and then um, Singo owned a building in Paddington, quite a big, you know, building, beautiful place, um, office block kind of slash um, built in amongst this residential kind of enclave. Good retreat, if I remember rightly. Mm. Sort of yeah, yeah, really amazing beautiful place, place man. Mm. So, I mean, look. Long story short. I basically got told that we had to move the company there, you know, the, the office there. So we had to suddenly work out of Paddington, you know, instead of Waterloo, you know. And it, it just cha- it changed the whole culture of what we, of, of who we were and what we were about, you know. So And it was, you know, Jeff said to me, look, man, I think it's time you started wearing a suit to work. Um, they all, it was a whole – it was a combination of all these little things, you know. And then there was other – so, you know, there was that, which I think, you know, I guess you could call that was – um, you know, the wearing a suit to work and working out of Paddington, you know, they're not huge things, you know, um, individually, but they all, you know, you couple that with, um, there was a, there was a um, we used to, I'll give you an example, right? So we used to, at the Toxteth at Glee, one of your favourite pubs, um, we had this space upstairs that was... The gallery off, space, right? The gallery space, and then off the gallery space there was maybe, maybe six rooms, right? Yeah. Now we could have either we could have le- we could have rented those rooms out yeah. to you know they weren't very nice they weren't you know it was share bathrooms like they maybe yeah. would have got us two hundred bucks a week each room right so call it twelve hundred a week we could have made in revenue out of that but I decided I wanted to let artists use them as studios for free right because I figured that that would add um, that would add a lot to the culture of the pub having artists hanging around there we had a gallery space there so it meant that the artists that were in residence would would do shows regularly you know. I still believe that's the way. I do. I do it now. One of my own pups at, yeah. at the Lord Gladstone. I still do that, right? I just, I just reckon that's a better way than twelve hundred dollars in revenue as opposed to that. But it's, a, but it's an intangible, right? So all of a sudden, for four years, we've been doing things like that. No one ever asked a question. Year four, I've got accountants saying to me, "Well, shouldn't they be paying rent?" I'm like, "Well, if if you make them pay rent, you're not supporting them, are you? You just, it's a commercial arrangement, you know." At the moment, they have a huge. We have a huge amount of goodwill in that artist community because we do that. Well, no, I think they should be paying rent, or let's kick them out and let's put people living in there. Let's get the twelve hundred dollars a week rent. You know, so the, a lot of this kind of small-minded, short-sighted stuff started creeping in. You know, and I'd be getting asked these questions at board meetings, and I just thought, "Fuck that!" Like, you know, you know, if, you know, if you know, if that guy who's meant to be part of our finance team doesn't understand that, that he needs me to clarify it for him or justify it that was the the worst thing was feeling like I had to justify things like that I just so that was kind of the beginning of the end of me and also coupled with all that I was headed down the road of becoming a career CEO which I just didn't want to do you know so um, um, so I then organised um, meetings with Jeff Singo and Mark Carnegie and just said to three of them separately separate meetings and just said look guys you know we're heading towards a float um, I don't think I'm the guy to take it. I'm not the guy to take this company to a float. I fucking don't even like being a CEO now. Um, I think we should find someone that would suit that, you know, real corporate, just do as he's told, you know, you guys. Cause, I mean, this is the thing, like, they they were all so experienced in that type of thing. Mm. 
and they were trying to tell me how to do it, but I just didn't want to fucking do it, you know. So, so I said, let's just let's find someone that's happy to be fucking told what to do, you know. That's you guys are the most experienced guys in this stuff, especially Jeff Dixon. I mean, he's a CEO of Qantas for God's sake. Like, if ever you wanted to learn how to be a CEO, that's the guy, you know. And he wanted to teach me how to do it, you know, but I just didn't want to, you know. That was actually the hardest thing was telling him because he was he'd given up a lot of his time trying to mentor me into becoming a CEO. We sent mm-hmm. weekly coffees and. But I just wasn't into it. I just, this is not me, Jeff. You know, I just, I just I'm not, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not, I can't play the corporate game and sit in board meetings and justify mm. why we're giving an artist a free studio, you know? Fuck that. I want to double click on that one because we talked about pubs and, uh, but, and I have memories of lo-fi uh, and, it, it's interesting. I know it was above Cancellas. I know it was above a pub, but um, particularly that year, two thousand and ten, maybe two thousand and eleven. Mm. Great it, times. It, it, but another the zeitgeist <laughs> of the city to me. Yeah. I, but not from a pub perspective, but from a culture perspective. Mm. The, there was an era where every brand launch oh, that space was getting used by. Yeah. And yeah. everyone wanted to be there. Everyone wanted to be there. Mm. Uh, we did our bar awards there one year with you yeah. um, and Lennox and John Fink cooking and stuff. And it, it, it's, it's such a – and that's a bit that I'm fascinated by uh, with you uh, because when I look at – I know you didn't create that. Like you worked with other people and whatever happened, happened. But that's really unique and to, to take that again and land with the Gladstone, which – is in, in some ways coolest place in town, mate. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, like it's it's sort of I don't I don't actually look at it as a, as a pub in a way, or, mm. or I don't look at lo-fi as a pub, mm. and I don't actually think about you as a publican, really. Like, there's this other thing that um, so I'm keen to ask you how do you like if you could get the gist of where I'm going? Like, yeah, I mean, mate, it's, it's community. Community is what it is. All those, you know, there's 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 I've always you know. Been a, um, I've always observed that there's just a whole range of diverse communities in Sydney, you know, and and you know, and you just, you know, I guess for me, I just went, well, you know, I like music and I like art and I like being creative, so I'm going to tap into those communities, you know, so and um, and you know, that's. That's how we started doing it, I guess. And Lo-Fi was one of the first ones where we tapped into, you know, uh, uh, you know what we used to call back then low, the lowbrow art scene, which was predominantly graffiti-driven, you know. So, you know, it's amazing now, you know, graffiti now is everywhere, you know. Like, you, you know, like fucking Portos have a graffiti in their stores, mm-hmm. you know. Like there's, you know, they're, they're commissioning these guys, you know, like, mate, they're commissioning guys that used to do stuff for us for free, now getting paid tens of thousands of dollars to do commission pieces, you know. So we were at the start of that kind of, um, um, you know, main uh, graffiti coming into the mainstream. We were at the start of that. You know, we're probably the ones driving that. And um, I don't know. It's it's it's. A, I'm not really. I'm not explaining it very well. But I think that um, I think supporting communities and tribes and you know. Um, within a pub environment it, it just seemed to be a thing that's always worked for us and I've really enjoyed doing and we do it now at the Gladstone you know like we have you know a huge amount of um, the music 
you know, in community or industry, you know, hang out there. We've got an art gallery upstairs where we don't charge commission. Um, again, it's this thing of, you know, it's, it's an intangible thing, right? So we've got an art gallery space and this is the third gallery we've done. Um, Lo-Fi was the first one, Lo-Fi Collective, which was on level three of Kinsella's. Then we did the Tate Gallery at the Toxteth. And now this one's called Good Space at Lord Gladstone. And it's, um, you know, we don't charge any commission. There's a weekly show. So it, it fills a gap. So literally your show's on Wednesday. So you come and you hang all your stuff up on a Tuesday. Your show's on Wednesday night and Thursday you're out. So it's a, just a new way of doing a new way of running an art gallery and it, and it fills a, a, a need for artists who are pre-normal galleries mm. where you go and you do a three-week exhibition and you and you pay a big commission of your sales to the gallery owner and, and you're there every day talking to prospective customers. You know, this is like a... Um, it's for... It's low risk. It doesn't cost the artist anything. It's one night. It's a, it's a good way for them to dip their toe into, um, you know, into, into the art world, I guess. You know? So I found that really interesting. I found that a really interesting thing to do, really enjoyable thing to do. Um, and you know, pragmatically, it is a really cool way to bring people into your pub. You know? that's, yeah, that's, um, you know, that's, I guess that's what you were talking about. Mm. Yeah. Did that answer your question? I think so, yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah. And, but, and, and I think what, what's different is, is the awareness around community. So if I pick that answer up and take it back to the accountant you may have been butting heads with, mm. it doesn't, the system doesn't compute. No, no. You can't. No, and that's where, that's where corporate world and, you know, pub world kind of tend to clash, I guess. Well, in my experience anyway, you know. So we were always clashing about things like that. Um, I mean, also, mate, there's a, bit of, there's a bit of it that it's just... I just wanted to just do things that I want to do, right? Mm. So, so I'm, I'm really into music and I'm into art and I'm also into sport and I'm into cultural stuff, you know, as you know. You know, we've, we've spoken about, you know, many different things around Sydney. And I, I just always wanted to have pubs where there was things that I liked doing happening there, you know. And also, like, I, you know, and, and I also... I also am a real believer in... It's all right to be into all these different things. Just because you like music doesn't mean you can't like the footy, you know. Mm. And just because you, just because you like going to an art show or you like graffiti or, you know, it doesn't mean you don't want to go to a pub and watch a game with your mates, you know. And that was something that we learned very early on, very very early on. That I kind of, well, I mean, I, I don't know. I had to convince like some of our managers, you know. I remember in the early days. Um, you know, like there was some. I remember there was one thing at the Tate at the Tate Gallery, which was at Toxteth. Every Wednesday night was our show night there upstairs in that gallery. Yeah. And when State of Origin comes around, it's always on a Wednesday night. And yeah. I remember the managers of the pub said, "Oh, um, well, we're not going to show State of Origin in the beer garden because it's really close to the gallery." I said, "Well, what do you mean?" They said, "Oh, well, the people that are going to the art gallery aren't going to want to watch the footy." I said, "Man, that's fucking bullshit. Put it on, and you watch them all. You watch every one of them watch it." And sure enough, that's what they did. You know. Yeah. And I think there used to be this thing in Sydney of, you know, sport was, I don't know, it was almost like people were embarrassed to show sport or something. You know, you'd see so many pubs in the old days would have the sport on but with no sound. Yeah. yeah. They would have music on, but the game would be on the screen. That, that always just made no sense to me. Like, like you just, you know, you're not. You, you're you're not pleasing either market. Mm. You know, the people that want to listen to music have got the shits that you've got that on the screen, and the people that want to watch the footy have got the shits you've got the commentary on. Just put the fucking commentary on. It's only an hour. It's a <laughs> yeah. fucking hour and a half, right? It's an hour and a half. Then put the music on after. 
you know? And we, and that was like, we, you know, we do that in all our pubs now. And, but I remember when we started doing it, it was like this new, it was like a bit of a kind of a way out thing. Oh, wow, do you think the, do you think the, you know, are the women going to be offended that you've got the commentary on full ball when they walk into the pub at 7.30 on a Friday night? I'm like, mate, most of the women are fucking watching the footy, you know, like, like particularly the swans and mm. you know, there, was, there was this whole kind of, um, you know, I guess the, the, just the timing of it was, you know, I don't know, this, the, the swans became more popular and brought a different type of clientele, you know. For, yeah, footy's just not for, footy's not only for meatheads, you know, mm. like it's... And I guess it was more, it was probably more of a reflection on the areas where we own pubs. You know, like it was, we own most of our pubs are in the inner city areas, and the the, the, the demographic of a lot of these areas was changing mm. as we were buying these pubs. You know, and that was another thing that we, um, I think you maybe were alluding to before, is you know we were, you know, one of our great skills I have always thought was being able to pick what was happening in an area. You know, as we were buying the pub. You know, because that's really important. Um, um, in understanding what you need to do to turn that pub around, you know? Looking at the market as a whole now and your experience with private equity in relation to hospitality, based on what you just said, you know, their, their desire to look at things that you were essentially doing for free, giving away for free in the hospitality environment. Like I personally think those things are typically what make hospitality hospitality. Mm. Um, but private equity is infiltrating the industry pretty significantly in a lot of mm. different ways, whether it be through gaming-based groups, food and beverage-based groups. Um, do you think private equity has a place in real hospitality? Like, do you, do you a, think they can get on? I mean, they're certainly strange bedfellows, right? So, mm. But I think that... I think there's a place for them. Yes, I do. So I think, um, you know, private equity is always going to go where good returns are. Good returns, you know, pubs generate good returns on, on you know, on the whole. Yeah. Um, but I think, um, you know, and I think, I think private equity uh, have learnt this and most parts of the pub industry have also learnt this, that where they're a good fit are in gaming. Yeah. Because you know, you, man, if you if you can build a gaming-driven portfolio of pubs, let's say you get ten pubs that are all gaming, you know, you, you know, you can have as much as 80 percent of your revenue is gaming, right? Which is all electronically monitored. You know, it's just it's a, it's a business, right? It's a, it's you know it's a classic corporate mm. business, you know, vehicle. It's not a you know the type of pubs that I run now, for example, man, they're just not. Like, you know, gaming is a small part of our of our, you know, revenue mix. Yeah. Um, you know, we have a lot of those intangibles, you know, we, you know, you know, we have, um, you know, when we bought the Gladstone, I had my accountant, I remember after the first, I think the end of year one, you know, and, and there's like a, you know, there's like a line on our, on our um, P&L that's, um, I think it's, it's like, it's basically, you know, director's account. That's my yeah. account, right? So right. anyone who gets shouted, anyone who gets shouted a free drink, <laughs> yeah. goes on my account. You know, and the the year one number on that was was it was actually I don't even want to say how much it was because <laughs> it's embarrassing, right? But but there's no doubt in my mind that that we built that business on the back of that first year where we were just I was in there all the time. I only owned one pub, mm-hmm. so I was just there all the time. Yeah, me and and you know. Beck, my partner, and Benny, who's got a uh, you know, he's got a, a share in it as well with me. Um, 
um, we lived and breathed that, you know, and we we were smart enough to know who 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 it was important to be shouting drinks for. Yeah, you know, the cool bands, the you know, the, the artists, the guys that have big followings. Not me know. though. Not you. Well, I'm sure I did. I'm sure I did. You know. But, the, but I remember going to my accountant after, at the end of year one and him just going, mate, what the fuck is this, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I went, well, mate, some of that's me, you know? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, so it's, I reckon 20% of that is just me, my own personal just having beers there and a meal and whatever, you know, we'd always get put on, you know. Um, but 80% of that is, you know, we should be booking that under under uh, marketing promotions, yeah. you know. It's, um, well, what do you mean? And I, and I explained it all to him, you know, and I said, oh, there's this band that are, like, really, really popular in our scene and, you know, they just fucking live there pretty much, you know, they're there four or five nights a week. Yeah. I always shout them drinks when I'm there. Um, um, but the amount, you know, the, the amount of people who come there because they hang out there is unbelievable, you know. Mm. And, of course, he's never heard of that band and he's, you know, he doesn't understand that, you know. Yeah. So he just could never get his head around it, you know. But, but so that's the type of thing that just doesn't, fit with private equity, you know, because yeah. they can't understand that. They yeah. just, they think someone's taking the piss, you know. So um, so I think more and more, you, you know, I don't think we'll see private equity money coming into these smaller type pubs, the type of pubs that I've got now. But I yeah. think, I think there'll be, there's definitely a place for them in, you know, it's two ways, right? So they'll, they'll either invest in someone trying to build a portfolio of gaming type pubs yeah. or they'll do the type of deals which they've done recently where they've bought into an existing big group that's you know could be food and beverage focused but on a big scale you know so yeah. um, that you know that Bavarian Beer House mm. group what are they, what are they called Dining yeah. Group yeah uh, Rockpool Dining Group what's the one that I Australian Venue Co Australian Venue Co well no that's that's the old Dixon thing KKR, yeah, yeah um, so, I think Rockpool Bavarian is part of Rockpool now. oh is that, that okay yeah, yeah, yeah. Is now Rockpool. so you know that's like you know that's a huge um, number of you know large format food and beverage venues you yeah. know so they're not gaming driven but they're big enough and they can be and they're they're large enough in terms of the the size of each particular um, venue and the number of venues is large enough that they can systemize that you know, yeah to to you know it becomes like a franchise model exactly right so right. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a there's a there's a place for private equity money in those two type of mm. um, you know those type type of vehicles I suppose but um, you know, I think what's happening in the industry is there's now, and more and more, and this is where it's heading, it's two speed, right? So it's, you're either big or you're small. There's going to be no in between, you know? You're either, you know, part of some big group or you're a one-out operator, you know? Yeah. And then, the, and then you know, what will happen is, or what's already happening, is the way you compete is by being the personal one venue operator, you know? So um, I know myself, mate, from, from, you know, I'm currently running three pubs. And when we were running the Gladstone, when I only had one pub and I had nothing else to do, I'd resigned from Riversdale, I'd gone and had a break, came back, I was really enthused, bought a pub, one pub, lived a 20-minute walk from the pub. Mate, the Gladstone has never run as good as back then. Yeah. Never, you know? Like, there's, there's no... That's a fact, that if you have one pub, you're going to run it better than if you've got a few, you know? So, so then it becomes about scale. So as I, was, I think I was saying to you guys before we started the interview, you know, having three pubs is kind of like, fuck, I'm, I'm either going to just go back to having one pub or I've got to buy more and be bigger, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I, think there's, I think more and more of that is happening, yeah. Where do you think you'll go? <laughs> I think I'll sell... And and um, go and do Frank Strong's. That's what I think. I'll do. <laughs> yeah, right. You're leading us there, <laughs> which, yeah, which is yeah, the other, my other project. Yeah. 
Uh, before we get to that, can I ask you one more question? Yeah. Why are you in pubs? Like, wh- what is it about pubs that has drawn you uh, into them for the last however long? Like, is there something as a, a kid? Was it was your family in pubs? Like a lot of no, no, my up? family wasn't. Mate, I just fell into it, man. I was, I was, I was playing footy. And my mate had a part-time job at a pub, and I said to him, I wouldn't mind a part-time job. You got, is there any yeah. work going there? It just turned 18, you know. Which pub was it? And uh, it was in uh, Campsie here in Sydney. Yeah, right. So we were playing rugby uh, for Western Suburbs, and man, I was living at Croydon. My mate was living at Stratfield, and he was working at this pub in Campsie, and he got me a job there. That, that was it, yeah. So um, it was just an old-school suburban pub, yeah. and that was my, my first pub. So I sort of fell into it. But then I realised I liked it. Yeah. You know, I liked it, but I knew there must be a better place to work than this. You know, but I liked the, I liked the, the concept of it. You know, I liked the fact that you could. I really like the fact that it was. It's a. It's a business that has a bit of everything. So you have, customer interaction. Yeah. There's a sales element. You know, you're selling something. Um, you don't have to carry. Um, debtors you know like you get paid so you sell a beer you get paid straight away so yeah. I like that it's good cash flow business there's a little bit of marketing there's a little bit of um, um, yeah there's a bit of PR there's a bit of point of sale there's a, there's, it's, there's a little bit of everything you know? yeah I, I quite like that in a business well, and, and the way you do it there's curation I think like it's, and there's, yeah yeah, yeah, and, yeah and it's interesting um, I don't know if you've got views on this or time to answer but when I look at the market and the future um, trying to see what's happening but don't restrict it to the pub market per se but one thing I'll talk about particularly in the context of some of Sydney's challenges um, in its nighttime economy is that there is <coughs> a, it's a supply driven market now because uh, private equity property development these are other forces that are driving venues onto the market mm. it's not being driven by consumer demand mm. Mm. and so all of a sudden you end up with oversupply of food and drink outlets yeah. and and a really homogeneous experience between mm. them because they're all owned by the same person. A lot of average and, average yeah. places, and yeah. So, so mm. when you start looking at the skills that someone like yourself have and other publicans, many of whom we know, um, it's that I wonder about those old school skills uh, of being able to book bands and mm. you know like a lot of uh, the small bars who are sort of trying to work out how to fill their venues midweek mm. like, booking bands is a skill like it's mm. you can't it's a time s- it's a time consuming skill to know mm. who's yeah. right mm. you yeah. do definitely lose that at the group at, at the large group scale group level I think they struggle they get to a point where they become too big to yeah. be really in tune with, with yeah. What's actually happening? The way, but, like you, you I mean, the flip side of that is it makes it easier to be innovative if you're a small operator. Mm-hmm. You know, I think so. That's where the opportunities are. Yeah. That's where the opportunities. You know, it's it's easy. You know, it's it's. You know, I, I just I don't know. I've, uh, you know, my whole life I've always found it easy to outmaneuver big companies, just because I think they're they're fucking slow and cumbersome. You know, mm-hmm. I, so I like that. I, you know, I like taking them on. Because I just think, well, of course, we're going to be able to, out, out, <laughs> well, you know, we might be able to outperform them in, in you know, um, buying power or, yeah. you know, what, they'll be able to. What drives that about you, though? Like, is it. Is it, it um, I just hate authority, mate. <laughs> I hate, hate authority, yeah. Well, there you go. Maybe that's what it is. I, I, I just think it's, you know, I think it's the, 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 the more, you know, it's. I like being innovative. That's definitely, you know, I like, you know, I like doing that. I like being. 
I like doing things that people go, oh, fuck, that's a good idea, you know? And then you see people copying it and, you know, I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of that, you know? I don't get the shits with that as yeah, many as some people do, yeah, you know? Greatest form of um, flattery imitation. Jeez, they finally, they finally figured it out, you know? <laughs> you know? And we had another question for you, which was, um, I think for some listeners would be interesting, is what, what you look at when you are looking to turn around a pub or what, 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 what were the key things that you'd look to identify? Well, always you're trying to identify what's happening in the in the area, you know, like in, in the in the suburb or the... Or the, you know, is there, you know, then when, you, when you're looking at a pub, a pub is a pub, right? It's a building with some bars and, and a beer garden and toilets and they're all the fucking same. It's about where they are, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, they're all the same. I mean, the, the, yeah. I mean, the, the raw materials yeah, are the same, right? right? Yeah. It's a piece of infrastructure with... Yeah, yeah it's, it's, you know, what's going on around it, you know? So when we were buying all the pubs in Riversdale days, you know, we were buying, typically we were buying distressed pubs, you know? So we would go in there and we would say, right, well, what, what are they doing wrong now? You know, and sometimes they weren't doing anything wrong. It was just they had too much debt or too much, you know, there was exterior um, things happening that made them have to sell it cheaper. But also some of them were they just completely misread the market or the market had changed around them while they owned it, you know. Some of them, you know, a couple of them. The Vic was a good example. The Vic was owned by an older guy who owns a lot of pubs, very, you know, mate, very successful guy. I'm not, not trying to... Um, down, not trying to have a um, criticise him or anything like that. He's a very successful guy, very smart guy, very rich guy. Um, but he owned that pub. He bought that pub thinking that that the so the Vic's in Enmore, but it's on the it's on the cusp of Enmore, Newtown, and Marrickville. Right, Marrickville is a very strong poker machine area. All the pubs in Marrickville um, have a high level of um, poker machine turnover. Um, he thought the Vic was going to turn into a pub like Marrickville, but just got it completely fucking wrong, right. mm-hmm. you know, completely wrong. And I'm sure, he, I reckon he'd admit that. I'm, I've, never, I've never met the guy, but I, surely he would just admit it. I mean, he's got enough money, he could admit a mistake, you know. Um, he sold it to us for a big loss because he actually finally realised that he was wrong, you know. And, you know, and we, mate, within three months, we that we turned that place on its fucking ear. Like it was, you couldn't move in the place after three months, you know. And, and mate, we didn't do that much. But we understood what was going on around there, you know. We knew that, no, Marrickville poker machines aren't going to come here. Newtown renters are going to move here because Newtown's now too expensive. Yeah. Everyone's migrating down the hill. Yeah. All the young creatives were living around that pub. And, then, and you know, that, when we bought that place, there was still, like, lingerie waitresses on a Tuesday night or something. <laughs> it's, it's crazy, right? So you think about what type of pub that is now, you know. So, so that's a good example where the area... Or the, or the guy who owned it just got the bet wrong, right? So then other pubs we um, we bought and the area had just changed around them, you know. They owned it too long or maybe it was a second generation, you know, where they inherited it from their parents or something and, and, uh, and, the, and the demographic had changed around that area. Um, yeah, I mean, they're the kind of... So, sorry, to answer you, so get back and answer your question. The, 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 num- the first thing is to identify what's happening in that area. Then you work backwards from there and you say, right, well, you know, what do those people want? Who's living in this area? Right, that's, that's who it is. What do they want from their pub? You know, how can we be... How can we, you know, re-engage with them, you know, make them feel part of... How do we become part of the community? How do we make the people feel part of the pub community, you know? Um... One of the good things about going into areas that are changing, gentrifying or change, or however, you know, whatever word you want to use, I hate that word gentrifying, even though I use it a lot, but um, 
one of the, the one of the if you can if you buy a pub in an area that's in the midst of a change, usually the people who have just moved there are, are just so quick to get on board what you're doing because it justifies why they moved there. Yeah, you know? yeah. So so if you think about Enmore, they you know in the you know years ago people would have moved to Enmore and they would tell their friend, oh we've just bought our first house in Enmore. Oh Enmore, why would you want to live there? Suddenly the Vic becomes popular. People are proud about living in Enmore. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, we live in Enmore. Oh, you live near the Vic? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Isn't yeah. that cool? Yeah. That's such a cool pub. I love that pub. Yeah. So suddenly, like, you know... Yeah, you're right. People are proud of living there because the pub's good. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, right? But it's true. That's, yeah. You know, it's true. So um, it justifies people's reason for moving there, you know? That's that's one part of it. And, um, and I get, you know, just, I guess, engaging in the community and just knowing... You know, you know if it's just knowing what they want, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So, like, is um, you mentioned that you like doing things differently, mm. and I'm sure in your time with all your contacts that you've been pitched numerous times to do a craft beer. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go out there and say that 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 must have happened. But you, being Patty, <laughs> thought. Fuck craft beer. Craft beer's boring, mate. Fucking craft beer. Jesus. Why do beer when you can do lemonade? That's right. Craft brewed alcoholic lemonade, mate. That's where it's at. That's where it's at. Yeah. So, yes. Craft beer, it's not boring. Craft beer is very crowded. It's a crowded market. Um, um, It's amazing, you know, craft beer. I was only talking to someone yesterday from um, CUB going through some data that they had, you know, craft beer is still a very small part of the market, mm. but it's highly influential, you know. It's very influential, very important um, that you have the right craft beers to attract customers, you know, but it's still a small part of the market yeah. in terms of overall yeah. sales. But, um, yeah, Frank Strong's Craft Fruit Alcoholic Lemonade, yes. Tell um, us about that. So, mate, that's a little, my, new, my next project Um and it's it's a, I mean, it's brewed like a beer. It's the same strength as a beer. It tastes a little bit like a shandy, I suppose. Um, it's not an alco pop. It's not a premix or any of that stuff. It's um, um, it's the brand is pitched at young creatives, music, art, culture, all the things that we do in our pubs. Um, probably uh, you know, I don't know under between eighteen and thirty, I suppose. Um, and yeah, mate, we just—it's been a real interesting project. Yeah, look, we've we've launched it. It's for sale in pubs. It's going pretty good. You know, it's a whole new business. It's interesting, very talk, interesting business. We talked about this earlier, but it's—is um, there a comparator in the market? Like, is there another? No. Oh, mate, they're, they're, sorry. There, there are some craft brewed. Well, not craft. There's there's some alcoholic lemonades that exist out in the market, but negligible in terms of scale. So no, no one's really. Um, it's a it's a category a category that's um, kind of open to be taken. We're trying to take it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're distributing that outside of your pubs at the moment. Yeah, yep, right. yep. We're on tap in like nine venues, I think, yeah, right. in, around Sydney at the moment. We're just we've just signed a, a national distribution deal with um, Paramount Liquor. Awesome. So we're about to roll that out. Um, we're going to do Brisbane first, then Melbourne, then the other states. Um, um, yeah, it's it's on the we're we're on the cusp of 
you know, going, growing, growing bigger with it. Yeah, I think, I think, mate, I, I, this could be the biggest idea I've ever had. Like, it's yeah, it's, well, like the, the it's something that could be worldwide. It's 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 a. Um, I think the market's right for it. I think that the um, you know drinkers, particularly males under the age of thirty. So when I was growing up, and probably you as well, Mike, um, you know, ev- everyone had their beer that they drank and they're loyal VB drinkers or Tui's new. Man, that's just fucking gone. Well, this doesn't exist anymore, you know. Talk to the customers in my pubs, the under 30-year-olds that I service. That you know, that, I mean, I, like I know a lot about this market be- just because I own the pubs yeah. where they go. Um, mate, they don't give a fuck. They just drink. Well, they'll change drinks every night. They don't care, you know, yeah. and, and very open to trying new things, new products, you know. Um, and cider is a, you know, huge growth market. And this is a good cider alternative. It's probably closer to cider than yeah. it is to beer, you know. Yeah. Um, it's got 40% less sugar than mainstream cider. So that's a real big thing that we'll be, um, that we're, you know, in terms of using as part of our marketing pitch, we'll be doing that later this year. That's a huge, huge thing, right? And, and when you think of all the, you know, everyone's very sugar, you know, sugar's the enemy, mate, at the moment, yeah. you know. So, well, um, yeah, and there's this uh, thing which I don't know if I'm going to get the detail right, but you heard about Seedlip. Are you across Seedlip? No. Seedlip is a non-alcoholic spirit. So if you... Non-alcoholic? Yep. yep. Mm. You're drinking a gin and tonic. I can have a Seedlip and tonic, which is non-alcoholic gin and tonic. Yeah. Served in a nice bottle. I think... uh, We'll have to check this out. What's the point of it? The point is, the point is that Diageo, I think Diageo just bought it for half a billion dollars. Yeah, really? Right, yeah. We'll have to check that out. But, mm. um, but it is... It, and Seed lip. I was sitting, sitting there talking about this with Mikey Emright and mm. uh, Fraser Lockwood from South Australia the other day, and we, we were just saying, if anyone had told you that... Mm. And the point about it we were coming to the conclusion of is that... Uh, and we know that there's a uh, sort of declining uh, rate of alcohol consumption... You're seeing non-alcoholic cocktails on menus. Health health awareness is growing. So, but socially, if we're out together and you're wanting to participate in the social ritual, you can ask for a seed lip and tonic mm. and be included. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, and it's it's quite an interesting. It's been intriguing. Um, we'll Makes to, no sense to me at all. Yeah, no, we'll, 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 we'll have to. We'll have to <laughs> I'm sure it's great. We'll have to get the Seedlip guys on. The, well, well, I think, on I the, think the, the alcohol industry is a is a you know very you know hugely um, interesting you know sector to me. You know, I guess because I've always been around it through the pubs. You know, I've always been we've always been the one buying it and selling it. You know, mm. and so um, so this has been we've been working on this for quite a while. I think it's I'm really excited about it. Yeah. Okay. It's not a, it's not a it's. Uh, it's not a hobby. Like it's something I'm taking very seriously. Yeah. You were you involved in the actual. Brewing process, Are you yeah. managing that right from start to finish. So we made took us a year to come up with the final recipe, right? Um, and you know we did about eight versions of it, and we did tastings every time we had a you know we'd do a sample batch, we'd have tastings of it, write notes, all that sort of stuff. But the 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 kicker was right at the end. So you know the alcohol pop tax, so it's an eighteen percent alcohol pop tax, right? So we went to the tax office and we said, well, we want an exemption for it. it's not an alcohol pop, it's a it's a well. We said it's an alcoholic lemonade, but it's brewed like a beer. They said, but it's not a beer, it's a lemonade. I said, yeah, but it's brewed like a beer. So we want to be taxed like a beer. They said, no, no, well, you can't. And we had to, like, take the ATO to court, basically. And we eventually won the ruling, you know. So we're actually taxed as a beer, which means the right. price point is the same as beer, you know. So, um, you know, so that's been a big part of it as well. And, yeah, stay tuned. Frank Strong's. 
best of luck with it. Available in all good outlets. <laughs> Coming to the Welcome Hotel. Um, yes. The House podcast. Moving in the right direction. Living just enough. Just enough for the city. So, Paddy, we uh, have five questions, standard questions asked of every guest. So I'll just fire them at you. Um, top of your head answers are welcome. So we spoke about this before we came on air, but podcast or book that you either listen to uh, or actually listen to, read, and then therefore pass on, recommend to other people, what, what yeah. would that be? Yeah, man, I'm obsessed with podcasts at the moment. So I yep. um, haven't read a book in a while, but... Um, Podcast I've listened. What's a good, my favourite one that I've listened to lately? Favourite one. Um, I, I like the Mark Burris one. So there's one by Mark Burris called The Mentor, mm. and it's just all about small business people. You know, just he does like one small business person per episode, and they talk about how they started and what stays they're up to. And you know, I just really like that. You know, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So that's a good one. Cool. Yeah. I haven't heard that one myself. Mm. Um, album favourite album or artist right now? Um, favourite album. I always judge this by what I listen to when I'm in the car. Yeah. Because I figure that's like the main time that I actually listen to music in one hit. So at the moment, I'm listening to Spit Syndicate's latest album called Orbit. Okay. Very good. Aussie hip hop. Yeah, right. Yeah. Listen, go and buy it. Yeah, it's really good. Favourite drink apart from the four mentioned? Frank Strong's. Favourite <laughs> drink? Apart Frank Strong's. It's <laughs> huh? not a great drink. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I'll just have a beer. Otherwise, I'll have a beer. I'm pretty boring with my beer taste. Like, oh, I, yeah. yeah, I like a pretty normal. What's your go-to? Oh, like a pure blonde tour. Really? Yeah. It's low carb, man. I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, favorite venue apart from one of your own? Oh, apart from one of my own. Yes. Oh god, that's a hard one. Even an off-roader, to be honest. Like, is there anyone out there that you? Yeah, really I like. Um, doing? I mean, I like Solitel. You know. Yeah. I like what they do, yeah. I think they seem to have found, you know, they're big, but I don't know, you go into their venues and I don't go in there and hate them, <laughs> you know? Like, I, yeah. So, you know, I'm sure the bigger they get, they'll probably, you know, lose that mm. touch more and more, but I do go into those venues and I like their style and, yeah. And they and they own venues around my inner west area, which is yeah. my kind of stomping grounds, you know, so, so that's probably another reason. Yeah. Cool. I think Mike and I would both agree with you on that one. Yeah. Um, who, who, like, who's a good, in, in, like, an independent, like, sorry, not independent, like a small-timer? Who would be one that you'd like, that I could give a rap to? If you can refresh my memory. Like, what pubs do I go to? I go to, oh, I like the Shakespeare in Surrey Hill. Like, yeah, there. it's a good it's pub, a good one. really good pub. That's owned by, like, an older lady, so let's not give her a rap. Someone young, <laughs> up and coming, you know? Well, here, I mean, the welcome's... Welcome's good. good. We're, we're doing the podcast today, yeah. Just had a nice burger. Um, anyway, let's move on. I don't know. Well, I, 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 I guess people like you know, maybe the Lansdowne. Do you like what they're doing? Yeah, yeah, I love what they're doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're a good one, yeah. I like those guys. Mm. I don't know them that well, but they're, they're um, I like what they're doing, mate. They're, you know, yeah. they've got that right, um, approach, yeah. you know, that sort of fuck you attitude I like that <laughs> I like that you know Sydney yeah. needs more of that you know? we'll have to get Jake on shortly yeah uh, and then finally mates uh, biggest inspiration to you could be someone 
I guess, pretty relevant to your life now or something you've dealt with in the past, but is there anyone that you would hold up there as being... Mate, I had a... I mean, John Franks, a guy named John Franks was like my, you know, biggest mentor, father figure, taught me the pub industry, just everything, mate, you know, and, you know, so he would be... I always, you know... He's like my go-to whenever I get asked questions like that, yeah. Where did you work with him? Because I reckon I would know about five or six people that would say exactly the same. Yeah, oh, very influ- he's had a lot of, he's, had, he's been very influential on a lot of people in the yeah. industry and I'm just another one of them, yeah. So um, I worked with him at the Woolmaloo Bay Hotel. It was my first right. It was my first pub. Sorry, it wasn't my first pub job. It was when I decided to take the pub industry seriously yeah. and, I, and I, got a, uh, I applied for a traineeship there, got the job. He just took, really took me under his wing and just taught me everything. And, you know, and I, but I'd come from a pretty sort of shit family situation, so he became a father figure to me. And right. Yeah, really, yeah, really, you know. I mm. sort of, I'm very, um, I have a lot of affection for that guy, yeah. And I'm still in touch with him now and see him all the time and speak to him and all the rest yeah. of it. Yeah. And, you know, so there was, you know, apart from the personal stuff, he also taught me, he taught me the business that I'm in, you know. Mm. Gave me good training, you know, something that is very kind of lacking these days, you know. Everyone wants to be a manager after five minutes, you know. I actually learned the business <laughs> yeah. properly with him, you know, which yeah. there has always, I've always, but I, on a daily basis, I'll remember something that he taught me, you know, something just really little, you know. That's awesome. Just ingrained into me, you know, which I don't think young people don't get that anymore in our industry, unfortunately. Well, I've got to just, um, and maybe we can wrap with this, but um, the, the one person who uh, I think would think differently is Ben, um, mm. your Ben, because. Yeah. I My was, protege. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but he, he does, um, you know, I've, I've watched him grow under your guidance. And, um, yeah, I was getting my hair cut down the road the other day and uh, uh, Brendan down at Sterling was uh, regaling how much Ben appreciates what you've been able to do for him. So oh, it's a great oh, thing. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. it's a great thing that you've been able to pass on to him. Oh, that's good. So, Paddy, that's so tell him to stop getting tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um Paddy, it's been great having you on. Um, I think uh, if we uh, go six months, we might want to get you back on, ask you a few more questions. Sure. But uh, yeah. I wish you the best of luck with Frank Strong's. Uh, I think that in answer to your question, I think you're going to go from three to ten, and I'll look forward to seeing <laughs> that. Oh, yeah. Jesus. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. Cheers, mate. Thanks. Cheers. So what did you think about that chat with uh, Paddy? Well, Paddy and I've known each other a long time, so it was great to be able to ask him some questions and find out more about how you just end up with those the big three at a mm. table. I mean, uh, I was quite taken with his views on where accountants should sit in comparison to business people. I found that was pretty <laughs> insightful. And yeah. I think we may have just lost our whole investment banking community now. <laughs> as but, um, it, I mean, you know, it's a, it's great to, I think, identify what skills you have and what's essential to a project and what everyone's roles are. I guess mm. that's one of the takeaways yeah. I had on that, yeah. Yeah, nice. Then the other was, like, he's, he's obviously, like, a talented individual, but uh, he's quite collaborative actually in how he goes about things or at mm. least he, he, he takes counsel quite widely uh, I remember um, any new venues he'd be asking questions of a lot of people and, yeah. and even today uh, I think the Rule Boys are involved or Matt Rule's involved in his music promotion side so he's just a great collaborator what about mm. you? Uh, mate I just I really appreciate the way he looks at a local pub 
um, sorry, looks at the local demographic um, relevant to a pub and really tries to understand them and then fits a, a business to them. I think a lot of business owners tend to fall into the trap of doing what they would like uh, or delivering what they would like in terms of product or entertainment, um, a style of venue, that, and, and you can get caught out by delivering something that's not relevant to your local market. So it's very clear, I think, knowing his venues and, and hearing him talk, that's a conscious um, decision for him to actually understand his local demographic and deliver something that's going to be relevant to them and make sure that the marketing activity reflects what's relevant to them as well around, you know, the, the, the um, art gallery, for example, obviously is in pretty... Um, Bohemian is the wrong word, but but you know demographics that, that really enjoy art, they really enjoy music, and that's not relevant to every demographic. So he's obviously fitted his passions to local areas, and then and attributed venues to though to to suit both. So Michael, who have we got next week? Yeah, looking forward to this one, Luke. Mm. Josh Nyland has just picked up uh, Gourmet Traveller Chef of the Year, uh, Restaurant of the Year, and also Time Outs. Uh, equivalent category chef of the year restaurant of the year yeah right uh, so and I think he might be I don't know his age but he's around something like 30 years old yeah um, his first owned venue uh, St Peter and I think he's somehow managed to do this he's got two kids uh, <laughs> a third about to pop um, hell of a nice guy one of those silent achievers mm. and uh, someone I'm really looking forward to talking to uh, and understanding how he's gone and achieved so much um, at such a young age so Exciting times. Yeah, good stuff. Look forward to that.